Three, two, one. Hit What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, I can't with some of these people. Right? Put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, Would you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my advice. Seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. Today, I'm joined by professor in American politics and chair of the political science department at the University of Chicago, William Howell. William and I explore issues including how the historical rankings of the American presidents will change in the coming years as society's values shift, whether there is a correlation between a president's approval ratings and their historical rankings, whether any presidents might be added or removed from Mount Rushmore in the next few decades, and finally, what will ultimately be the defining legacy of the Trump presidency and how the Republican Party can move forward in the next four years. All that and so much more on another episode of... Nervous Habits. Hey everybody, hope you're all having a terrific week and month of... I believe this uh, this episode will be released in early March. Uh, we recorded it uh, around President's Day a couple weeks ago. Um, and I wanted to do sort of a president-centric episode for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I think that given the, the tumult and the turbulence of the last four years... Uh, it, 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 you know, I think it, it's really interesting to get a historical and, and academic perspective on how history will, will view, uh, former president Trump. Obviously, you know, it's been in the news lately since he, uh, was just impeached for the second time and recently acquitted. So I wanted to get, uh, the professor's perspective on that. And then on a personal level, you know, growing up, um, a lot of kids were into anime cartoons and sports, but for me, I, I I was sort of a dork. I, I remember just taking out books on all the presidents from the library and memorizing the Animaniac song about all of the, uh, I think at that time there was 42 presidents, and um, impressing people with <laughs> with my knowledge of the, you know, the presidents and vice presidents and the term, the years that they were elected and all that fun trivia. And sometimes I think it's fun to sort of debate with friends. Who, who do you think are the best presidents? Who are your favorite presidents? And... Um, and engage in, in that that discourse of you know depending on what you what you value right is is do you you know are you someone that considers FDR to be the one of the greatest presidents or perhaps um, Harry Truman uh, you know we'll, we'll talk lots about Lincoln and Washington and um, and their legacies so I, I do think it's interesting to it's certainly an interesting area of study in in another life I think I might have uh, th- this might have been my career. You know, maybe, maybe in a future life, just examining historical le- legacies of the presidents and the rankings. And what's really interesting about, about the rankings, and William and I will discuss this today, is how, how they're not necessarily static, right? Like, when growing up, it, it might have been the case that the top three presidents were, uh, you know, Washington, um, FDR, and, and Lincoln. But flash forward 20 years, it might not be those three, right? It might be someone like Teddy Roosevelt or... or Harry Truman, or um, you know, some might argue Ronald Reagan, right? So, I, I think it is it is interesting how these these the historical perspective changes over time. So, all that's to say, uh, a, a lot a lot of interesting stuff in, in today's episode. If you're a historical nerd like I am, um, you're definitely going to enjoy this. So, my guest today is uh, Professor William Howell. So, William Howell is the Sidney Stein Professor in American Politics at the University of Chicago, where he holds appointments in the Harris School, Political Science Department, and College. 
Currently, he's the chair of the political science department, director of the Center for Effective Government, and co-host of Not Another Politics podcast. William has written widely on separation of powers issues and American political institutions, especially the presidency, and is currently working on research projects on separation of powers issues, the origins of political authority, and the normative foundations of executive power. William's most recent book with Terry Moe is Presidents, Populism, and the Crisis of Democracy. He's also authored or co-authored numerous other books, including Relic, How the Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency, The Wartime President, Executive Influence and the Nationalizing Politics of Threat, Thinking About the Presidency, The Primacy of Power, While Dangers Gather, Congressional Checks on Presidential War Powers, Power Without Persuasion, The Politics of Direct Presidential Action, and The Education Gap, Vouchers, and Urban Schools. He's also written textbooks or been a part of textbooks on the American Presidency and American Politics. So all this is to say, guys, uh, William is one of the foremost authorities in the country on the American presidency. Listen closely to, you know, his his insights on what historian what historians consider when they're evaluating the presidents and what they're likely to consider when they look at the Trump presidency. Um, the last thing I'll say before we, we plunge into the conversation is something that that I, I really want I've wanted this podcast to be over the last two years is intellectually diverse. And I know that some of you might listen to my conversation with William and might disagree with me. You might disagree with him. You might agree with some things and disagree with another. And that's totally welcome. You know, everyone is is entitled to their opinion, um, especially when it comes to something like, you know, which which presidents you, you respect and admire the most, people who you consider role models. These are, you know, these are personal, uh, personal preferences and, and ideologies. And I don't want you to, to, to listen to this episode and think that William or I are telling you what you should or should not believe. So definitely, you know, enter this conversation with an open mind. Whether you disagree with us, whether you agree with us, um, you know, we I certainly welcome all perspectives. And, and, and I hope that you'll keep that in mind um, as you as you embark on this conversation. So without further ado, my conversation with Professor William Howell. This podcast is sponsored by Grammarly. So before starting law school, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, I I worked so many different jobs. I was uh, uh, at two different law firms as a paralegal. I was a business manager in city government. I was a senior vice president, believe it or not, as a 20, like 23 year old, but that wasn't, I don't think that was a serious position. I was a financial consultant at, at another company. And what all these positions had in common is I found myself every single day constantly refreshing my email that was my home base um was was really just constructing and sending out emails in all these different industries and it calls to mind that the amount of time we spend writing emails is actually kind of crazy so why not get a little bit of help uh grammarly premium helps you write like a pro with advanced real-time feedback you can level up your writing for work for school or for personal projects premium features include advanced suggestions on grammar punctuation sentence structure and style i've mentioned this on the podcast before but if you sign up for grammarly premium and you add it to your chrome bar it will literally as you're writing emails it will make suggestions and recommendations to rewrite your sentences for clarity for tone maybe that's too hostile maybe you can make it a little friendly maybe that's too friendly maybe you need to be a little more assertive right all different situations grammarly can help you uh, craft the perfect email it's the perfect writing tool for anyone who wants to stand out with every word and you can actually elevate your writing today with grammarly with 20 percent off by signing up at grammarly Grammarly.com slash nervous habits. That's 20% off for my listeners. Only my listeners. If you don't listen, you can't use this. <laughs> Gravely premium at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash nervous habits. Now back to the show. 
Professor William Howell, welcome to Nervous Habits Podcast. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Uh, it's actually sort of fitting that we're recording this conversation on President's Day, the birthday of the first president, George Washington. That was a total coincidence. Yeah, I, I find every year that President's Day kind of sneaks up on me. And I teach the American presidency here at the University of Chicago. So you'd think I'd have that date down, but... But no, it sneaks up on you. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's the it's the whole week, I believe. Uh, it's it's President Washington today. And then uh, Lincoln and Jefferson were also born um, around this time. So it's, it's it's interesting how how that just happened to work out in the month of February. <laughs> Here we are. Um, so, Professor Howell, there's a lot I want to discuss with you today. But I guess the best place to start what's you know on everyone's mind right now and what's been in the news the last couple of weeks is former President Trump's second impeachment and recent acquittal. Were you at all surprised that he was acquitted or, or was that what you expected would happen? Uh, that's what I expected would happen. And I think that's what just about every kind of political observer expected would happen. The, the divides between the Democrats and Republicans are so vast in contemporary American politics. It's, it was hard to imagine 17 Republicans breaking ranks and voting to convict. Seven did. That's noteworthy. Um, of greater, it's more noteworthy though that forty three didn't. And there's talks about for, for for folks out there who are curious about constitutional law. There's talks about potentially invoking the Fourteenth Amendment to a, a section a clause in there that might prevent President Trump from running for a public office again. Do you think that that's likely to happen, or, or because of the gridlock, it's it's unclear? Um, you know, there there are the kind of facts on the ground, and then there are the political calculations about how best to proceed. Um, this is going to play out in lots and lots of ways. It's going to play out at the state level as states consider whether or not to bring criminal charges against Trump. There's going to be deliberations within the Republican Party about not just whether or not he chooses to run again, but whether or not members of his family choose to run again and what kind of reception they get. Um, you know, the fact that the second impeachment is behind us doesn't mean that the, um, you know, big questions about Trump, his future and the role of populism in Republican politics um, have, have somehow been resolved. They have not. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring up that point, because I think for a lot of, of folks who maybe aren't as familiar with with the legal implications, they might think that he's out of the woods because he was acquitted. But as you mentioned, there are civil and criminal charges looming. I, I read something recently about a potential wrongful death suit by one of the officers um, that that was killed in, in the riot, as well as uh, uh, criminal charges in New York for tax evasion. Um, of all of those potential cases, do you think any of them you know, might be promising from from the side of the of the plaintiff or the prosecution. So those people who watch these things closer than I do handicap uh, New York as a kind of front runner, both because they're further along in their deliberations and and the charges against Trump seem to be um, kind of more robust. I think you know what's going the the appeals that Trump made. And the efforts to interfere in Georgia are worth watching. You know, what kind of deliberations flow from that? Um, we'll see. I, like, I, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know which one is going to rise to the top or which collection of them are going to rise to the top. Um, but these kinds of, um, you know, accusations are going to continue to flow. I'll say, um, in a strange way, though, they play to the president's advantage, his political advantage. Look, we most directly, we can see why it's costly to him, why they're downsides, right? Obviously. Um, but the whole premise of Trump's kind of rise to power was that everything's broken, everything's rigged. And to the extent that he can point towards, see the system again and again is trying to come after me. They're the rabid Democrats again and again, they're trying to come after me right. um, for 
his core base that prove you know serves as a kind of a further proof of just how corrupt our politics are and why their allegiance to this president, this former president, um, is, is so important. And that's sort of the, I guess, the advantage of all of his rhetoric is no matter what happens, he can point to the result and say, see, I was right. Um, and, and we're going to talk more about Trump's, uh, former President Trump's legacy in a few moments. But being that it's it's President's Day and, and being that folks are, are, you know, curious about where Trump ranks in, uh, you know, the history of American presidents, I want to talk to you for a moment about presidential rankings, uh, William. And for folks who aren't as familiar with the historical rankings of the 45 presidents we've had, how do historians generally assess a president and how much time has to pass before you can judge their impact? That's a, that's a good question. Look, there's a, there's a cottage industry of people going back to James Schlesinger Sr. who have tried to go out and rank presidents according to their greatness, right? Which are, who, who were the big winners and who were the big losers? Um, and they do this routinely by conducting surveys. They conduct surveys of historians or political scientists. I'm a political scientist, but I, I am, uh, when, when people try to, because I study the presidency, when people uh, look for scholars to weigh in on the matter, I've been asked to fill out some of these. Um, and sometimes too, they will consult with the American public and say, you know, how do you come out? Uh, what, you know, where, where do you think, who do you think were the, were the great presidents? They're all by reference to surveys. They're not usually done by objective criteria. That said, um, when you think about the kind of contributing factors to what allows individuals to rise in the ranks, um, what people typically look to is whether or not there is a deep kind of set of policy accomplishments by a president that are enduring, that are, um, that are sort of large in scope, that have had a big impact on our country. And so, you know, who are the great ones? FDR, Lincoln, um, Washington. Those those three tend to rotate in the top three stop spots. Um, and and what makes them great, people will point to, are the again the policy achievements, the the moments of crises that they met, the extent to which they were able to rise above the limits of their off their of their office in order to meet. Um, Kind of the demands of, of a public that was worried about some exigent crisis. Those who, who, who are kind of at the bottom of the rankings, it's usually because of scandal. It's because they didn't accomplish much of anything of significance. Curiously, those who leave office early, I, even unwillingly, because they die in office, those, those poor souls don't tend to you know, uh, rise up very high. Um, but it's by reference to what you did. And curiously, and I'll stop here, um, it's sort of secondarily, about whether or not what you did was in the nation's actual interest, whether or not it actually succeeded. That's not entirely true. I mean, there's some presidents who've, who've waged bad wars and those, those counted against them. But look, it's the fact that FDR did all this stuff with the New Deal um, that is the, you know, that, that, that lays the case for him being among the very great presidents and that he, you know, prosecuted the Second World War and not whether or not the those the, the particular policy initiatives that he advanced were sort of good or bad by some normative standard. There's a lot to unpack there. I think what's interesting about you mentioned FDR, Lincoln, Washington, is that they've managed to stay at the top of the pack for, in the case of Lincoln, 160 years, Washington, you know, 230 years, whatever it is. 
But what, but what I find um, particularly compelling is how modern culture and modern society shapes how we look at these presidents. You think about someone like Andrew Jackson or even Teddy Roosevelt, who at the time was seen as, you know, uh, uh, someone who, who is a trendsetter, who defies the norm, um, who's hands on, who's aggressive, assertive. But now when you think about the impact that they have through the lens of race and class and American uh, relationships to the rest of the world, they're looked upon as maybe less, uh, you know, less favorably. So I wonder if you have any, any ideas in the next com- in the coming decades, are we going to look at presidents like that and say, maybe they weren't so great after all, as society continues to evolve forward? It's a good question. I mean, I am struck by how consistent uh, these rankings have been over decades. I mean, this cottage industry goes back a half a century. And while some individual presidents have experienced some sort of dramatic changes in their rankings, Ronald Reagan is such a person, um, Mm -hmm. for the most part, they're actually reasonably steady. And we don't see, uh, there hasn't been much evidence of a radical reconsideration of any one president by virtue of how sort of uh, racially progressive or retrograde the person may have been. or, or any other criteria, it tends to be, did you do something big? Did you shake up our politics? Can you point to a set of accomplishments that are enduring? If so, you rise up. And if you don't, you don't, uh, then you tend to you know, founder in the rankings. And that's true even as we reevaluate the policy merits of those uh, accomplishments, or we reevaluate the kind of worldviews of the individual who occupied the office. Woodrow Wilson, I think, stands out in a big way mm-hmm. uh, along the along the lines that you that you've identified. Woodrow Wilson typically is ranked kind of in the ten to fifteen kind of place, but was uh, you know an abject racist. Um, and uh, and will his you know ranking suffer as a result? Um, we'll have to see. I, don't, I haven't seen any evidence thus far that 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 they have. And, and also because you mentioned Reagan, I think that that's another great example of how, you know, there needs to be a definite period of time, whether that's 20, 30, sometimes 40 years um, after which you can see the full consequence of the policy, like like Reagan's trickle down economics, what the, the fallout of that was um, in the late 90s and early 2000s. So you wonder, as we talk about President, uh, former President Trump in a moment um, or presidents like Obama and Bush, whether or not it's too soon to say uh, you know, what what the, the longevity of their policies will be. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult for people to kind of evaluate the historical legacies of presidents in real time because we're accustomed to viewing the presidents that we have to live under and alongside through distinctly partisan lenses. And we see them, um, you know, as as kind of champions of our cause or people who stand in our way. And it's hard to sort of see beyond that until we have some, some distance. That's true for the American public. It's decidedly true for historians as well. But here we are, we're having a conversation in real time about presidential legacies and we're gonna to turn to Trump. And so it's like, it's irresistible, the, the topic. And, and you almost also have to wonder how much of this has to do with what sort of the, the, the group mentality, the psychological mindset. You think about like hive minds or group, group think if a president does really well in public opinion polling or if most people tend to re- regard the president as, as having had a successful term. I think about John F. Kennedy, for example, um, whereas maybe their policy wasn't as robust, you know, you, you think about how that might impact how, how a president's viewed. Yeah, I think that approval ratings, for the most part, are actually pretty ephemeral and contribute pretty weakly to their uh, legacies. 
Um, there are presidents who at the time that they occupied the office may have been quite popular, but who, who, who we look back on and say, well, there isn't a deep, again, a deep bench of policy accomplishments. That's true of somebody like a Bill Clinton, who, who was actually reasonably popular mm -hmm. uh, in terms of his approval ratings. Now, how people evaluated him, the individual, those tended to be lowered over the course of his time in office, but his approval ratings were pretty solid. Um, um, and yet he kind of ranks in the kind of middle of the, middle of the pack, sort of the low second tier of presidents. Um, and he doesn't get to say, well, look, I was broadly popular. I served two terms. Lots of wealth was created while I was in office. What people want to see is, well, what did you accomplish that was enduring? Mm. Um, and there, it's not that he did nothing. He clearly did some things, but not the kinds of policy accomplishments that we, uh, we, we point to when we think of the sort of the first tier uh, of presidents. Um, I, I want to pick your brain for a moment about uh, Mount Rushmore, William. Built in 1927, we have Teddy Roosevelt, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Thomas Jefferson. Can you envision a scenario in the next 20, 30 years where a president will be added to Mount Rushmore or might even be replaced or removed, as you mentioned with Woodrow Wilson, uh, due to reconsideration of their legacy in the next 20 to 30 years? Boy, I mean, taking down somebody off of that mountain. Like, can you imagine? This is not just a matter of pulling down a statue, removing it from you know the town square. It would, <laughs> that would be quite a job. Um, uh, could we add to it? I think that's really interesting. I can see in the years and decades ahead, folks making a case for somebody like Reagan to be put up there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, if I were to handicap, who would be the next person for whom there would be kind of a push, a political push. And the reason why like these things are politically contested is that like we see in these people, not just, you know, um, great leaders, but the people who um, uh, exhibit uh, and stand up for our notions of what it means to be American, right? The, the kind of ideals and aspirations that we have um, uh, are channeled through presidents in important ways. There's a reason why they're all presidents on Mount Rushmore and not members of Congress. There are <laughs> plenty of you know, great members of Congress. They don't get a place on the mountaintop. Um, so to your question, yeah, if we were to say who would, who would, can I imagine there being a push for at some point? I can imagine there being a push for Reagan. And what about, what about removal? Can you see um, the, the legacy of, of say Jefferson or, or, or Teddy Roosevelt being uh, tarnished to the point where there's a movement to remove or replace one of them from, from Mount Rushmore? Yeah. I mean, Mount Rushmore, again, is a, that's a tall order um, because it, it's, you know, the, their mugs were chiseled into rock and, um, and so this is not about taking down statutes or renaming um, schools like the Woodrow Wilson School, right? That kind of at, at Princeton. This is uh, about, um, you know, going up and, 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 well, remaking the face of Mount Rushmore itself. Um, maybe, maybe. I mean, I think that these legacies are contested. They should be contested. I mean, I think that's actually a really healthy thing. The people we hold up to kind of as models for what great leaders were. And again, the kinds of values and aspirations that we hold dear should, we should continually reevaluate them. That would be, that would be healthy. So um, will it happen? I suspect not anytime soon, but mm. maybe, but for Mount Rushmore, uh, for, for, for the naming of the schools and the statues, you bet that's already happening. We're seeing that.
I figured it was worth asking just because to your point, you've seen a movement in all of culture, whether it comes to sports teams or, you know, renaming schools, renaming products and brands. Um, it's, I think it's definitely possible. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about where President Trump falls in, in, in the list of historical rankings. And before we do that, I thought it'd be helpful to sort of catch listeners up on the events of his presidency, just because I know it was a long four years. Uh, I guess the first year, William, 2017, was marked by the Muslim ban just a few weeks after he was inaugurated the appointment of special counsel Robert Mueller and the neo-Nazi demonstration in Charlottesville, where he noted that there were fine people on both sides. Do you think that any of these events will, fact, will factor seriously into Trump's evaluation? Um, to my mind, it's what stands behind those events that will. And that has to do with his uh, populism, his uh, racism, the, the bigotry that he not only channels but speaks to those will figure into um, the assessments of future historians when they look back at this time. The events themselves, I mean, like, like all events, when we experience them in real time, feel like a very big deal. But as we get past them, you know, we've had two impeachments, unbelievable. We had an impeachment just last week, mm -hmm. right? And, and yet al already now the conversation is, well, what's Biden going to do moving forward? Uh, I suspect we'll turn to that shortly in our conversation. But in any case, like the, as we experience them in real time, they can feel like a, a very, very big deal when it comes to the kinds of events that people look to in shaping um, uh, legacies, these less so. They, these aren't, these aren't going to, I think, weigh especially heavily. Mm. And then folks who I guess who, who are proponents of, of uh, Trumpian policies would point to his accomplishment in his second year, uh, well, actually a number of accomplishments on the international front uh, with North Korea's suspension of nuclear missiles uh, tests and the summit between uh, Trump and, and Kim in Singapore, but was also marked by the Russia investigation and his meeting with, with Putin. So how would you characterize those events? Or rather, how would you respond to folks who think that we should weigh his international um, policy achievements as well in these considerations? We should. I mean, it, these legacies are, are informed by not just their domestic policy achievements, but also what they do on the global stage. What's, I mean, this is, uh, you know, his efforts to try to denuclearize uh, North Korea have clearly failed uh, in the years that followed. I mean, that, that uh, you know, he, he it, it was historical for him to meet with uh, the leader of North Korea. Um, and there was some suggestion that he was going to make headway where previous presidents had failed, um, but that he objectively has not, right? That they could, their, their nuclear program continues and in, in some respects has been uh, ratcheted up. And so it's hard to see how that's going to figure into kind of a, a foreign policy win that he can point to. That isn't to say, though, that what he is doing has done um, um, as uh, on the foreign policy uh, landscape is not without notice. I mean, his withdrawal from the Paris Peace Accords, from um, his altering the nature of the U.S. relationships with, with Russia. You pointed to that. Um, uh, arguably, most importantly, the, the trade war with China, which he, he launched. Mm. All those things are cut against the grain of recent presidents and their foreign policy posture and will certainly factor into future assessments of Trump's presidency. And, and in uh, William, in his third year in 2019, that was the year that uh, the news broke that Trump asked uh, Ukraine's leader to investigate President Biden leading to his impeachment. And of course, Trump was, was the third president to be impeached. Uh, uh, president Clinton and uh, Andrew Johnson were the others. 
Do you think that when when you're evaluating historical rankings of a president, there there is a special uh, tier, uh, you know, reserved for for folks who have had the you know have been admonished in this sense? Um, when you consider, we haven't really spoken about Johnson, but when you consider Johnson and Clinton and Nixon, is there an, an ignominy and a shame associated with that? For sure, right. For sure. I mean, Andrew Johnson was one, I mean, there's widespread recognition, was one of the worst presidents we've ever had. And the fact that he was impeached, but not convicted uh, for his uh, decision to fire a cabinet member, that was what he did, right? That was the, the immediate charge at hand, um, does, does not sort of play well in terms of trying to resuscitate his legacy. Um, uh, Nixon, who who bowed out lest he not only be impeached but convicted, all signs pointed towards that happening. You know, ranks among, um, you know, in the in the bottom tier for sure among presidents, despite the fact that he has actually a pretty deep bench of policy achievements. And meanwhile, uh, Clinton, um, who who was impeached, this look the effect that it had it ranges somewhere between no effect and a negative effect there's it's hard to see how it, it had any kind of positive effect and so was this good for trump it may have been good for him politically in the short term again it kind of fed into this larger narrative that he wants to say which is that the whole system is rigged and the democrats just can't couldn't come to grips with the fact that he he won the 2016 election um as a way to shore up his base there's some political kind of um currency to be had there but the idea that this is going to contribute positively to his, his legacy. I don't think so. Yeah. And now, I mean, at this point he's the answer to the trivia question, right? Like the only president to be impeached twice on top of having lost the popular vote uh, twice and losing the, uh, uh, a one-term president, uh, you know, losing as an incumbent. And then William in his fourth year in 2020, obviously Trump had to battle the, the COVID pandemic uh, and downplayed the the dangers of COVID at, at, at every turn. I've, I've read, you know, uh, some of your peers in the political science community and folks, historians who, who work on these matters have, have surmised that perhaps his handling of COVID, his mishandling of COVID will be his greatest, uh, you know, the greatest point of his legacy. Do you, do you agree with that? I do agree with that. I mean, I think that's this classic case of the medal of the president being measured against the nature of the crisis put before him. And the question is whether or not in the face, not of, you know, a, 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 a virus that, you know, nobody is going to claim that he, you know, he concocted it, right? Clearly not, or that he is responsible for it coming stateside. The question is, how did we as a country meet it? And the answer is we met it horribly. Uh, and the fact that we're coming up on a half a million people dying within um, a single year, right? a half a million people within a year, and the rollout of the vaccine program coming in fits and starts and the inattention that he paid to the issue and his consistent efforts to sort of minimize it, all facts to the contrary, and his unwillingness to recognize in a kind of heartfelt way, the profound loss, um, human loss that this country experienced, uh, I think is going to um, weigh extremely heavily on on, on the judgments of future historians about, about his presidency. And we could devote an entire podcast just, just to fleshing out all of the, the specific instances of, as you mentioned, inattention and the lack of, for me, what was striking is the lack of seriousness um, mm -hmm. about, 
you know, not wearing masks, not social distancing. You saw that at the confirmation for Amy Coney Barrett, the super spreader event, as well as, um, you know, having once he was diagnosed with COVID, sharing the message that he was fine, even though he had access to experimental drugs. I, I, I'm, I'm certainly no uh, historian. I'm, I'm not making any of these decisions, but from a public perspective, I think that's going to be certainly what, what I remember and, and what folks in my generation remember. I think that that's right. And, and the, the sort of the, le- the, the sort of the most unpresidential moment of his time in office was the moment in which he came forward and said, I'm not responsible, right? He disavowed responsibility. What presidents do is in, in moments of greatness is they, is they take on the entirety of the moment, mm-hmm. even though they lack the formal powers to meet it, but then they marshal everything that they have at their disposal in order to forge a productive way forward. So think for a moment, the difference between hit between Trump's disavowal of uh, any responsibility and what um, George W. Bush did in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, mm-hmm. in which he went down to ground zero, climbed atop the rubble and spoke through a microphone in which he said, you know, like the world is about to hear from all of us, right? He, he, you could see in his, sort of the physicality of his being, him assuming responsibility for this moment and saying we are and, and owning it. Now, what followed were all kinds of mistakes, right? And failures for sure. And so I'm not trying to lionize Trump, but I'm trying, but what I'm suggesting is those are the moments that are the stuff of presidential greatness. When presidents assume full responsibility and say, we're going to push forward. And when presidents do that, those are the ones who remember as being great. And, and, and so this was the, Trump's response was, was in every way the antithesis of that. I mean, what, what else is there to say? I think you can point to any, I mean, I think President Bush is a great example, but you can point to any president's handling of a crisis and really any uh, catastrophe that, that presidents have been faced with rising to the moment and not making it about them. I think that was that was the, the most stark thing about how Trump handled COVID is everything was about, oh, you know, like, for example, when you watching mainstream media and they're covering the deaths, it would be framed as instead of this is a serious crisis that people need to be aware of. It's, oh, the, you know, the media is portraying the, is tying my legacy to the virus because they're trying to perpetuate the narrative that I'm responsible. Whereas as you're suggesting, not making it about him, but making it about the needs of the American people. That, that was, I think that was a key, um, a key failure as well. Yeah. The unending narcissism combined with the constant lying combined with the disavowal of any responsibility. I mean, it's this like toxic stew. Yeah. And I wish I could say, William, that that was, that was really the only failure from 2020, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the death of George Floyd and the racial unrest around the country. And it all culminated in, I'm sure you remember the image of uh, former president Trump holding a Bible in front of St. John's church about a mile away from me in DC after tear gassing protesters. Is that something that when you consider his legacy, that event and what followed uh, something that, that, that you're going to evaluate? I think so. I mean, it's both his, unwillingness in a serious way to grapple with the legacy of race in America. Um, And his stated reason for not doing so is that he was the law and order president, fine, but he was a cartoonish law and order president. He wasn't a a law and order president who had thought deeply about what those words mean or what's required uh, of a leader who wants to ensure uh, the rule of law within his someday her borders. Um, it was just a kind of a 
bumper sticker declaration. And that, that event that you're pointing to was a kind of classic case of that, right? He, he, they, they, they tear gas the, the, the protesters so that he can stand in front of a church and clench his fist and hold up a Bible. Not because he reads the Bible deeply, not because there's a deep conviction that he wants to assert. It's all by way of posturing. And uh, it's, it was hollow. I mean, it was vacuous. Um, and yet, um, but yes, these, these two will resonate, um, I think, for some time to come. Yeah, I, no, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I think as society continues to become um, more socially responsible, more vigilant about these issues pertaining to, to race and socioeconomic class, I think the Republican Party specifically, because and we can speak about the folks surrounding Trump in Congress and in his leadership, but they're going to have a decision to make about whether or not they want to be on the right side of history or um, if they want to continue sort of, as you said, Trump's um, mantra of law and order and this isn't about race and, and things of that nature. That sounds right to me. I mean, I'll say I don't think the only the only amendment I would make to what you just said is that they'll have a decision to make. I, I sort of feel like they've been making decisions all along and they're mm -hmm. going to continue to make them. And most of them have pointed towards their willingness to stand behind Trump and all that he stands for and to fall in line and to not call him out. That's what we saw with uh, this impeachment trial. And that's what we've been seeing for a very long time in the in the face of abject failures of leadership, in the face of a nonstop onslaught of lies, the the not just the tepid response, but the willingness of so many Republicans to abide that kind of behavior and and then many others to celebrate it, to say, this is the future of the party. This is the future of our country. Um, I, it, I think one of the things that we, you know, when we think about the significance of this moment, it's what is to become of the Republican Party, right? Where is it going? Um, we're a long way, it sure feels right now like we're a long ways from the Republican Party being the party of limited government and low taxes and um, moral character, the kind of stuff that it defined itself by uh, for um, much of the last half century. And that was absolutely on display during the 2020 election. And I know a lot of Republicans who conservatives, some stood by stood by Trump um, up until the election. Some were, were always uh, averse to, to, to Trumpist uh, populism. But a lot of people were really disturbed by the number of Republicans who refused to stand up and support the Democratic you know, the, the results of a democratic election. I mean, the fact that we have, we live in a country in 2020 where there were what 70 million people that just didn't believe the results of the election. It's, it's horrifying that, that, you know, that was unsettling for me to watch. Yeah. And I mean, and, and 74 million people voted for Trump. So I think when you think about what does the future look like, it's worth certainly pointing towards the behavior of people in office and trying to make sense of why they aren't willing, despite the entreaties of a handful of moderate Republicans to speak their conscience and stand up for long held conservative principles. But it, but the, the, I mean, the, the answer to that is, well, look where the base is right now. 74 million people voted for Trump despite his behavior despite what happened with the pandemic, despite the, on, you know, the constant lying. Um, and, uh, and so some of them were because, you know, they're just conservatives and, and they couldn't, you know, 
countenance the idea of ever voting for a Democrat. That's for sure true. Uh, but they're all, it also is the case that he remains incredibly popular mm -hmm. among a, a, this core base. He is not a pariah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and plenty of elected Republicans know that, and they don't want to cross that base. Nervous Heps Podcast is sponsored by Ritual. You guys, I don't know if you're aware, but most people's diets are missing some essential vitamins and minerals. There are actually seven that nutritionists with Harvard Health Publications say everyone needs to consume every single day. That's vitamin D, magnesium, calcium, zinc, iron folate, and vitamin B12. That's actually part of why I started taking a Ritual multivitamin every day. It's just too much time to have to ensure that my breakfast, lunch, and dinner incorporates all of these essential ingredients. And the Ritual multivitamin that I take is actually specifically for men above the age of 18. Includes everything that I just mentioned, plus omega-3, vitamin K2, and boron as well, to ensure that I'm covering all my bases and filling any gaps in my diet. Get key nutrients, guys, without any of the BS. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. You can visit ritual.com slash nervous to start your ritual today. That's ritual.com slash nervous for 10% off for my listeners during the first three months of their subscription. So give it a shot. Try Ritual today. And now back to the show. And I think part of the reason why, William, that they're so fiercely supportive of him has to do with the Supreme Court. And we've talked about COVID. We've talked about race. We've talked about the impeachment, the insurrection, and the election. But conservatives will you know, listen to this. I'm, I'm sure there are uh, folks listening who are Trump supporters right now. And they'll point to the Supreme Court as being Trump's greatest achievement as a one-term president to appoint three justices for life. What, what do you make of that? I think that that's true. I mean, it's an interesting mix with Trump because on the one hand, you have a collection of real sort of standard run-of-the-mill policy and political accomplishments. So his, his appointments to the judiciary, the Supreme Court for sure, but also at the district and appellate level, he made lots and lots of conservative appointments. Mm -hmm. um, the tax cuts that he pushed through, right? The deregulatory efforts that he undertook almost all of which were done unilaterally, but there they are. Those, those are real policy accomplishments. I mean, those are genuine wins on the one side. On the other side are both these failures of leadership that we've described, but also um, this kind of populism, which has had the effect of remaking the Republican party, this populism, which has sown all kinds of anger and disaffection uh, within the broader public and division within the broader public, this populism, which to its core is oppositional and destructive. Like you have this curious mix of here are some standard policy political wins, and then also all this other stuff, um, which make up his legacy. And that's born of Republican coalitional politics. He himself is a genuine populist, but in order to pave his way forward, he had to bring in the Mitch McConnells of the world who were just right standard conservatives. Um, so he was willing to do things on their behalf while also advancing this larger populist movement, which he sees as being, you know, as uh, living long past his own presidency. And that's a perfect segue to, to what I wanted to speak about with Trump and the media, because I know that ever since he got banned from Twitter, which if you're following the news, it was initially a suspension. Now it's a permanent ban. Um, folks in Trump's inner circle have said that he hopes to create either his own social media platform or maybe his own media network. Um, so as we as we think about that, the relationship between uh, Trump and the media, do you think that his 
assault on the free press um, from day one, his statements that the fake news was the enemy of the people. Do you think that will factor heavily into his legacy? Yes, because that is part and parcel of the progressive, the, excuse me, the populism that he channels. What it means to be populist is to be anti-democratic and to run roughshod over um, any kind of rules or democratic impediments that stand in his way. It's about, it's about delegitimizing, not just disagreeing with, but delegitimizing an opposition. Um, and, you know, throughout the time he ran for office, he talked about the, uh, and then once in office, the, the press being the enemy of the people. This was like a, a defining feature of his presidency. Um, and it's something too, when we think about the, the, the legacy that he leaves behind, um, this, this is an important part of it. The politics left in his wake are more toxic, more divisive. Um, our democracy is in a, a moment of real crisis to my mind. Um, and it's, it's not exclusively because of what he's done, but, um, uh, but he plays a big part in, 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 in the state of affairs that, you know, that, that define our politics today. And it's, it's not, it's not just him. And I think that's, that's the message that, that I'm, I'm hearing come through your words. And uh, I, I think, I think people listening might also be thinking because as much as you want to say, this is Trump, you know, th this is America, right? This is, as you said, 74 million people that support that supported him hundreds in Congress, um, you know, party leadership, uh, lobbyists, folks in, in, in the corporate sector who have had his back, who have either explicitly or implicitly supported him through his failures at, at every one of these uh, points. And I think part of the crisis that, that we're in, as, as you say, has to do with the fact that, you know, people are realizing this, this isn't, you know, Trump isn't what created the problem. Trump is just a symptom. I think that's exactly right. I mean, so I, I wrote a book with Terry Moe called President's Populism and the Crisis of Democracy. And you just did a much better job of summarizing the core argument of the book than, than we've managed to do since it was published about six months ago. It's, exa it's exactly right. It's that, look, um, the, the preconditions for populism to take hold were not fabricated by Trump. Um, that they laid the groundwork for his rise to power, but they're also going to endure in, well past, um, um, you know, his second impeachment. Um, and if you're worrying about, if you, if you worried about the state of our, our democracy throughout the Trump years, I think we could, you could take some solace in the fact that he wasn't reelected, but we are far from being in the clear that um, 139 people in the house and 139 of them, uh, in the immediate aftermath of that insurrection with, within just you know, minutes of it having uh, ended, nonetheless saw fit to come forward to vote against certifying the, 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 the returns and to breathe new life into the lies that this was somehow a stolen election. Um, all those people remain in office. I mean, and, and, and how do you, how, how do you, what, I, I don't understand how, you know, how we're supposed to respond to that as a country when you have, Folks like Senator Hawley and Senator Cruz, who, who not only voted to certify or voted not to certify the results of the election, but also have been endorsing and supporting Trump's rhetoric. How how does the Republican Party move forward with with folks like that leading the charge? Well, that may be how they do move forward is with them at the helm. I mean, we'll have to see. It'll be really interesting to see um, whether or not. You know, Mitch McConnell, who clearly is not a populist and would like to see 
conservatism, his notion of principled conservatism take hold once again. But he too didn't vote to convict. I mean, he gave this fiery speech afterwards, but he mm -hmm. wouldn't come out and vote to convict in the Senate. Um, and uh, I think, look, you've pointed to exactly the right thing that, uh, that the Hollies of the world, the Ted Cruz's of the world would be more than happy to pick up where Trump left off. And so the discussions that we're having now in many circles about what's the future of Trump, oh boy, how could he possibly rise up again? You know, how could he possibly after having been twice impeached and, and will, you know, and, and surely the Republican Party will allow him to run for office in 2024. Maybe, maybe not. But there, again, there are plenty of people who would, you know, would, would be more than happy to pick up the mantle of Trumpism, of populism and push forward. Um, and in that sense, uh, you know, I don't I, and I to be honest, I don't know what is better. Do you want if you think that Trump did damage to my mind? Well, you, you could take some comfort in the fact that he spent one to three to one to four days on a, on a on a golf course, that he was not especially disciplined. Right. That he and you, you get somebody like a Ted Cruz into office or a Holly into office who's mm -hmm. going to be more single minded in pursuing these kinds of objectives um, and and. And, and, and watch the damage done to our democracy. I mean, if anything, we need to be more vigilant than ever. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely hear what you're saying. I, I, and I agree. I think the Republican Party has fewer conservatives. You think about, we, we spoke about um, former President Reagan earlier uh, and, and, you know, the laissez-faire economics that he stood for and the, you know, importance of freedom and order over everything else. I, I agree with you. I, don't, I, I think the Republican Party has, has certainly moved away um, uh, moved away from that. Now, I, I sort of want to bring our conversation full uh, full circle. We spoke earlier about the presidential rankings and, and who generally is considered among the best and worst presidents. When you think about, you know, where President Trump might fall, and again, this is very, very early to, to be having this conversation, but um, it, he's, he's certainly, uh, I don't think any reasonable person would would put him up there with Lincoln, FDR, Washington, but uh, would you characterize him? Would you put him with the Buchanan, a Warren Harding, um, or, or an Andrew Johnson, what's your early take on this, William? I would. I'd put him at the bottom. Um, Andrew Johnson gives him a real run for his money. Um, but I think the damage that he has done to our politics, the failure to meet the, 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 um, the, the, the pandemic, the, um, the anger and disaffection left in his wake, um, and the failure to deliver on policy, it, it, you know, bringing the country together behind um, long and enduring major policy change, right? He, he failed to overturn and replace Obamacare. He didn't build his wall. Um, he didn't remake the immigration system mm -hmm. um, uh, in a way that is... Uh, sensible. I mean, well, he did. A, he did plenty of things to be sure, but most of them were accomplished administratively. Mm -hmm. um, this is a president whose policy accomplishments are, are, are weak and whose attacks on democracy are profound. Um, and um, and so I sus right now I would I would bet that he's going to rank among the very worst. Now a big question is: Let me just throw out this one thing, which is: What's to say if you know a, a, a Cruz or a Holly wins in? 2024. And that what we do 30, 40 years from now is look back and to say, Trump is the individual who ushered pol populism into our country. And it, and it took, 
mm. and it endured and it fundamentally altered our uh, not just uh, our government, but our understanding of one another. Um, and, and, and there, I think then we'll, we'll, we'll revisit this and we'll say, boy, you might like him or dislike him, but hugely impactful. And I think in the short term, he's been hugely impactful. There's at least some chance, though, that he's going to be repudiated. I'm hope, I'm hope, I, I, right now, it's hard to see the repudiation coming from within the ranks of the Republican Party. Uh, but if Democrats can continue to win seats in 2022 and 2024 mm -hmm. um, and build a more constructive agenda and put populism on its heels, uh, that, that would strike me as good for the country, good for our democracy. And, you know, I'm sure there are people listening who think, how can you put Trump, uh, put former President Trump below uh, folks like James Buchanan, Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, presidents during the, the antebellum, uh, the pre-Civil War years. But my, my take on it is, you know, these were individuals who were already plunged into a crisis when they were when they were um, inaugurated. They were already dealing with uh, what had been decades of divisiveness between the North and the South, whereas if you look at President Trump. The, the, the polarizing rhetoric and the divisiveness and, and the stoking the fires of, of hate, that all started when he was elected. So I, I know you, you, know, you put him with, with Johnson, but just to respond to people who are inevitably saying, how can he be worse than the pre-Civil War presidents? I, I think that, that there is a distinction there. And can you imagine if Trump had been president during the Civil War? Can you imagine what would have happened there? Boy, I mean, and the additional layers are the constant lying and the, the, the sheer number of scandals. And I think we're gonna to continue to learn more about them in the years ahead that have plagued his presidency. That's the reason why Harding is considered among the worst is because of the scandals that gripped his short time in office. Right, um, and, and so, yeah, you see the, the presidents, the three presidents leading up to the, um, the Civil War uh, are routinely ranked in the kind of the bottom quartile for their failure to come to grips with the issues involving race and slavery in America that then you know, broke into the outbreak of, uh, of the Civil War. And that's why they're ranked among the worst. So I think Trump has that. Again, more people died in this last year under COVID than, I mean, so it's what, 800, 900,000 roughly Civil War deaths over the mm -hmm. four years of the Civil War. We have 500,000 in one year. Um, and it did not need to be anywhere near that high. And a and in, in, sort of ironically, that was a moment where he could have grabbed hold of, of those reins, driven those numbers down, and I think, and reclaimed kind of a place among, certainly not among the great presidents, but among in, in the sort of upper half of the distribution by taking that on in a serious way. But he, he, he failed and, and failed catastrophically. You know what I'll say for, for people out there who are fans of William Henry Harrison, you have to be thrilled because he's going to be moving up in the rankings. This, this, was is the <laughs> this is the president who was uh, uh, president for 30 days, gave the longest inauguration speech ever, uh, got pneumonia and passed away. He's looking pretty good right now. <laughs> I know. Bless his heart. I think he should be given a pass altogether. 30 days. How yeah, do you some, become? I, I know some some rankings, if you if you see, they, they omit him. And uh, there's another president. It's not Garfield. There's another president that's omitted because of the shortness of the term. Um, it's escaping me now. Uh, so, so I do want to round out our conversation on a positive note, because I feel like there's right. been a lot of gloom and doom on the yep. Trump administration. Let's talk about how President Biden might move forward here. Uh, you, you saw the beginning of his term was undoing most of Trump's uh, administrative policies. What do you think 
should be uh, President Biden's number one priority? And, and how does he repair the divide in this country? Yeah, what should be is what he already recognized uh, is what he already recognizes, which is he's got to beat this pandemic and he's got to attend to the economic fallout that so many Americans have felt. And I'll say, if he's able to do that, do that constructively, do that impactfully, he'll also, um, there's a chance at least that he can, I mean, he's not going to win over all Republicans, but that he can put populism on its heels to the extent that he can reach out to vulnerable Americans and do something on their behalf in ways that the government had failed to do so long before Trump assumed office, um, that, that he, he can go some way towards bringing us not just back from the cliff, but back together so that we begin to share, recognize our shared humanity as Americans, that we can, um, that the kind of uh, distrust of political institutions may abet a bit to the extent that right, the government attends to the crises at hand and does so materially. It, it, it will not work if what Trump, except what Trump, what Biden does is say, hey, you know, government's misunderstood. You know, it's not so bad. Like, uh, and just, you know, goes on a PR campaign about how everything public is good and great. Um, I mean, people need to see results. Um, I think this is a president who recognizes as much. Um, uh, and the question is whether or not he's going to be able to deliver. And, you know, it's it's we talked about how Trump um, frames the, the media perception. But, you know, that if 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 and when President Biden defeats this pandemic and everyone's vaccinated, and this is in the rearview mirror. You know that as much as Biden will deserve and receive credit for that, tr Trump is going to talk about and I'm sure folks listening have thought about this. Well, a lot of those initiatives were started under the Trump administration. You look at uh, what is it? Moderna and, and Johnson, a couple of the big pharmaceutical companies announced that their vaccines were available the day that Biden was elected. So I'm sure that that's going to you know come up in conversation. These were Trump's parting words before he boarded a plane and left Washington, D.C., right? You're going to see a lot of good news, he told the country. You're to see a lot of good news. Remember me. Remember us. We're the ones who, who deserve the credit for it, which is really kind of an unbelievable claim in the aftermath of so much denial and so many lies um, and such a lack of leadership. Uh, so, but there it was. I, I think that you're exactly right. I mean, we, we heard it from Trump himself. We certainly will continue to hear it from his um, enablers supporters and apologists. Absolutely. So, so COVID, COVID needs to be the main priority um, for the Biden administration. And do you think that, that, that there's anything else that Biden needs to make sure that he may, he puts at the top of his agenda, whether it be economic policy or have, you know, having to do it with uh, repairing the relationship of America around the world? Yeah, I think you look there, the, the stimulus um, bill that he's pushing for right now is not just about beating back the pandemic. It's about attending to the economic fallout of the pandemic. Um, and, and it's potentially doing so in ways that aren't just about addressing immediate harm, but that will kind of restructure the economy itself. Um, there's that. He's going to clearly going to need to work on issues involving diplomacy. He is working on issues involving diplomacy. There are a set of other crises, though, that he identified that I'm, af I'm afraid, you know, it's hard to see how he productively moves forward given the composition of the federal government. Mm. So things about like climate change, things like rising inequality between the rich and the poor, 
things about revisiting the tax code, things like uh, advancing comprehensive immigration reform, not fixing kind of the worst offenses of Trump, but actually producing a coherent immigration system. It's hard to see how he makes headway on any of those profound challenges. And that does not make those, those, you know, those crises not crises. It just means that our government and that he are, are unlikely to be able to do anything about them. Well, I will say, um, so, so on this podcast last, uh, I think it was last week, we had a, a, uh, a, a the director and producer of a Netflix documentary um, on on climate change, and that's something that that I'm very concerned about. Uh, it, I, I think a lot of people are are um, beginning to realize the urgency of the situation. So, I mean, Biden's done the bare minimum, rejoining the the Paris Climate Accord, and and hopefully we see developments when it comes to switching to renewable energy resources. Um, you know, dealing with uh, the the deforestation and, and the burning forests and overfishing things of that magnitude. But you're right with given the, um, you know, the gridlock in Congress. And as long as you have, you know, that 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 lack of, of collaboration, I do think his work is cut out for him. I will say, and this is the last thing I'll say on, on President Biden, the fact that the New York Times is now running stories about him wearing a Rolex, I, I think that that almost bodes well. If that's the biggest scandal from the first you know, couple of weeks of the Biden administration, I'll take it. Oh, we all will. That we might actually uh, have real conversations eventually about real issues and not just kind of reacting to the latest iteration of crazy, right? The latest sort of tweet that comes down the pike that's meant to kind of shake us all to our core, uh, that we may re reclaim some normalcy. That would be very good. It truly was a reality show the last four years. The the the, I, the Apprentice Part Two, the the Donald Trump White House, whatever you want to call it. Um, William, listen, this has been a wonderful conversation for all those listening. Uh, William is the host of Not Another Politics Podcast, which examines scholarship that speaks directly to contemporary political developments. He also has a new book entitled Presidents, Populism, and the Crisis of Democracy, which explains how populism took hold in American politics the threat it presents to democracy, and what we can do to counteract it. William, I'm sure listeners want to know where they can go to learn more about your work in general or purchase your book. So uh, the book is available at bookstores everywhere. Books <laughs> and, everywhere. Yep. And, um, and listen, it's been just a delight speaking with you. There's so much in play right now. Um, I find it helpful to have these kinds of conversations, if only to organize our own thinking about you know, what stands before us and how do we carve a productive way forward. And I like the name of your podcast, by the way, Not Another Politics Podcast. That's, that's very clever. And, and if folks want to tune into that, more conversations like this, I'd imagine? Um, yes. What we do on that podcast is we feature scholarship. Um, it's usually a paper. Uh, sometimes it's a book written by a political scientist that's trying to grapple with some fundamental fact about domestic politics, sometimes international relations. Um, and, we, and we think a lot about you know, what, what the contents of the, the paper are and um, what its limitations are. Um, it's, it's scholarship, but trying to speak out to um, people broadly who are interested in politics. I am definitely gonna, gonna give that one a listen um, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, I'd imagine. It sure uh, is. Awesome, awesome. Well, Professor William Powell, thank you so much for, for joining me. Happy President's Day, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Happy President's Day. My dog in the background says as much, too. <laughs> Thank you. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with Professor William Howell. And I hope that you enjoyed our, our conversation on, on 
you know, the historical perspective on the rankings of the presidents. There's a lot of literature out there where, you know, different organizations from C-SPAN to, you know, Newsweek and the American Political Science Association, all different organizations will uh, take um, polls of, of presidential historians every 5, 10, 20 years and, you know, put out rankings on who's um, who are considered the greatest presidents. And most recently, there was a, the most recent one I can find anyway, in 2018, there was a Siena poll of 157 presidential scholars, and they essentially ranked the top five as Mount Rushmore plus FDR. So that's FDR, Washington, Lincoln, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and Jefferson. And then the that very poll, the bottom presidents, the bottom five were Johnson, Buchanan, Harding, and Pierce. And Trump uh, was was considered in, in that survey in 2018 um, towards the end of his term. And, and we did talk, you know, we caveat and said it's, it's very early to, to be uh, sort of viewing Trump's legacy. But it is interesting that that recent 2018 poll put him alongside Johnson, Buchanan, Harding, and, and Pierce. Johnson, of course, um, was impeached, the scandal. Buchanan and Pierce were um, antebellum uh, pre-Civil War presidents. And um, Harding also uh, had had a, a number of scandals in the in the 1920s. So that's that's you know that that's not very surprising. I'm um, some presidents, whether or not you you think they're they're great or they're merely okay, depend on your ideologies, right? Like Republicans will say that Ronald Reagan is one of the best presidents ever, and Democrats will will say you know Reagan was was passable. Uh, it's the same thing with um, Republicans and uh, and. Democratic presidents like JFK or LBJ or even potentially uh, Barack Obama. It is it is interesting. I mean, you can you can literally go down a, a rabbit hole just just you know just reading about um, all the different all the different polls that have taken place over the years. Uh, there's also Gallup. This is really interesting. Gallup polls on just uh, on just approval disapproval, disapproval how much you like presidents um, and. This is interesting. Then they have there was a, a survey done in uh, done done in nineteen eighty two amongst liberal and conservative historians, and the top uh, liberal for among amongst liberals the top five were Lincoln, FDR, Washington, Jefferson, and Roosevelt, and amongst conservatives was Lincoln, Washington, FDR, Jefferson, and Roosevelt. So pretty much the same, except conservatives ranked FDR a little lower, which is. Um, I guess unsurprising. And then um, I'm curious about this. There was a poll that was done. So which president? Okay. So which presidents have the most favorability? Washington at 94 percent, Lincoln at 92 percent, Jefferson at 89 percent, and then mo. Okay. And then who? Which presidents have the most unfavorability? Nixon, uh, President Bush, LBJ, H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton. Um, so there is a little bit of a recency bias for sure. Um, but I don't think that's that's surprising. That's surprising either. Um, best president since World War II, Reagan. Worst president since World War II, Obama, according to a Quinnipiac poll. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's no real consistency here. You know, the, and then in terms of the factors that that are looked at, and and um, and in terms of the factors that historians historians consider, and, and uh, William laid out a couple of them, but like the Siena poll, for example, they talked about. Background, imagination, integrity, intelligence, luck. Luck is, I mean, a huge one, right? Like, what's the circumstance that you're inheriting? 
willingness to take risks, ability to compromise, executive ability, leadership ability, communication ability, party leadership, relations with Congress, court appointments, handling of economy, executive appointments, domestic accomplishments, foreign policy accomplishments, and avoidance of crucial mistakes. I like I like that there's such a um, you know such a formalized cate- you know category by category approach. Uh, really reduces the likelihood that you're going to have the interposition of of you know um, the biases of these historians and and as much as possible try to quantify these things. And if you ask me, gun to my head, you know who who the greatest president is, I wouldn't hesitate in saying that it was Lincoln. I mean, you know, we talk you talk about the luck factor. <laughs> I don't think it, it it can get any more unlucky than being elected in 1860 as the South was seceding in the midst of a civil war, having to you know win the war. And, you know, enacting the Emancipation Proclamation and a subsequently radical reconstruction um, with, with Congress and the passing of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments. Um, and who knows what more he could have done had he not been assassinated, bringing the country back together, certainly laying the foundation for uh, future presidencies. It's, I, I don't, I, you know, as much as I, I admire um, what president i mean president president washington it's funny i almost think president washington's underrated just because of the the foundations that he set for example only you know uh serving two terms and and making sure to limit the powers of the executive so that it wasn't on the level of of a monarchy and um you know uh, american neutrality not not that that lasted uh and of course you know president roosevelt increasing the the scope of the federal government and, and taking responsibility for for the less fortunate and reviving the economy during the new deal and uh, and winning world war ii i mean it's it doesn't get better than that but definitely definitely i would say lincoln and and if any of this interests you rather than recommending you know any of the historical literature out there and and there's a lot certainly um you know hundreds of books you can read on on, on any of these individuals uh profiling their lives but I, I'm a, I don't know about you guys. I'm a movie guy, as as you know, with all the the abundance of references here. So there are a lot of incredible movies that you can watch on the presidents if if you are interested. Uh, of course, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln stands out. That was doesn't get any better than Daniel Day Lewis in that movie. Um, LBJ was was just I think there was uh, Rob Reiner was incredible incredible um, film. I watched a movie. I think it was called Truman. I'm pretty sure. Uh, I watched that in, in APUS. That was a terrific movie. Uh, LBJ was good. That's pretty recent. Frost Nixon, if you're interested in that. I never saw Ab- Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. I, I don't really I don't really know what, what's happening there. I don't, think, I don't think that's the same genre. Um, Oliver Stone's W. I think that was Stone. So, yeah, I mean, it's it. Uh, there, there's some good some good films out there. And as much as the last four years have driven us apart, I think one positive byproduct is people are interested in politics now you know folks uh, look at the look at the voter turnout rate in 2020 high i mean higher than it's been in 100 years uh look at the number of people that are going to to law school that want to study politics or, or the law um people who are interested in things like historical rankings of presidents people who are looking back at history i think that's something that um for all of the the you know, negative implications of the last four or five years. I think this is one positive that there is an excitement and, and a fervor around around government for maybe the very first time in a lot of people's lives. So I want to thank uh, Professor Hal for joining me and I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with him. So next week I am doing an episode unlike anything I've done before uh, on the pod because I'm going to be talking about drugs, not just any drugs. I'm going to be talking about psychedelics and 
I, I've talked in general terms about addiction on the pod before uh, with an addiction uh, specialist, Vera Tarman, uh, uh, about 10, 15 episodes back. But this is going to be different because I'm going to be joined by professor of neuroscience, Austin Lim, to talk about how psychedelics work on the brain and whether LSD, magic mushrooms, and DMT can be used to treat anxiety and depression. That is going to be a very different, very fascinating conversation that's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thank you so much for listening, guys. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. Watch full episodes or clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast. You can email the pod at NervousHabitsPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have not rated and reviewed the pod on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate if you took 5-10 seconds to do that. And remember, as much as you might want to replace or remove presidents on Mount Rushmore, their faces are chiseled in stone, so it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Take care and stay nervous.